Our gospel reading is from the third chapter of Matthew. I invite you to turn with me to follow along. Or you can trust me. Either way. I'm actually reading from the New Revised Standard. It's a little different from yours. I'm actually reading uh, the entire chapter. So listen to the word of God as we begin the verse chapter 1. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John came wearing clothing of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and honey. And the men of the people of Jerusalem and all Judea were going out to him, and all the region along the Jordan. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for it is proper for us in this way to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus had been baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. May God bless the hearing and reading of His Holy Word. Let us pray. Lord, in the midst of the many words that are both without and within, may your living word set us free. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, my two oldest grandsons are kind of contrast. You know, they're both wonderful, but they have different gifts. My oldest grandson uh, has a real technical mind. He's, you know, he lives in his head. I have no idea where that came from genetically. Uh, and, uh, but he, uh, he, is, he loves robotics club, so he's a robotics club. Uh, matter of fact, I gave him, a, um, I gave him a, a robotics book that you can build robots and one of my sons said, as I handed it to him, says, and this is how the Terminator begins. <laughs> my, other, my, my second uh, grandson, my, uh, Adam, my second son's oldest son, uh, is a just a big, healthy, you can see he's already kind of got an athletic shape. And they have him in an alternative preschool, which is uh, in a reserve that's connected to Fairmont Park. So he literally his preschool is outdoors all year round. I mean, they come in you know when it's too bad, but they're learning trees and and learning nature and 
Uh, matter of fact, the family went on a hike and they got lost. And at the time he was four, he was able to get them back on the path. So on some levels, I think we've got the future covered. Okay? If technology continues to advance, my one grandson's in good shape. If society collapses and we're back to hunting and gathering, my other grandson's in good shape. So we've got the whole future covered there. Uh, I, I'm a little concerned that we all maybe need to get better at our hunting and gathering skills, right? Uh, because it's pretty amazing. Uh, Dan Carlin, the great historian, uh, student of history, uh, has these wonderful kind of thought experiments. And he says, I wonder if our generation had to fight a previous generation in a war, who would win? Okay, for instance, if our generation, say, no tech, don't worry about the technology. But if our generation had to fight our, say, the generation that fought World War I or the pioneer generation, he said, no question, the older generation would win. In part because we have been so shaped by our technology and conveniences, right? Okay. For instance, um, there's a lot of things that my, my grandfathers could do that I have no idea how to do, right? Okay. Because they, they didn't have the convenience, okay? Now, again, working on cars was a lot more complicated, but, you know, they could probably build anything they needed to do. They could rig anything they needed to do. They could live off the land. Both of them could have, all right? And so there's a sense where there's a certain set of skills that have been lost with modernity. And, uh, and sometimes we just assume that there's this kind of inevitable progress that goes forward. But history tells us that's not the case. Okay? Civilizations rise, and when they collapse, it's usually kind of by surprise. So that's why I think this morning I want to help us all with our wilderness skills. Okay? In case that we have to all become hunter and gatherers, I want to give you a couple points. And I, went, I did research on this. Okay? And so I looked at wilderness survivor kits. Okay, um, and literally, you could, you can, you know, there are people that have a $50 survival kit. There are people that put together a $5,000 survival kit. So it's kind of a fascinating thing. But as I was doing research on this, there was the rule of threes, and I, I don't know if I'd heard this before. I probably had, but I never heard it quite said this way. Okay, the rule of threes is humans can survive three weeks without food, three days without water, three hours without shelter, three minutes without oxygen. So you kind of make your priorities that way, right? Okay. You know, you get shelter before you get food. You get water before you get um, food. All those things are kind of the hierarchy of needs, right? Okay. Obviously, if you don't have oxygen and you have the option of getting that, you get that very quickly. But there's this Canadian wilderness expert who adds a third one, or not a third one, but another three. So three weeks without food, three days without water, three hours without shelter, Three minutes without oxygen, three seconds without hope. It's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, the most important thing if you're in the midst of a crisis, your survival depends on the hope that you can live. Hope, therefore, in his hierarchy, is more important than oxygen or water. All right, with my set of skills, I don't know how many days I could help you survive, okay? Probably a week or so. <laughs> I, could get, I could get us through that. I was, I was a Boy Scout. Not a very good one, but I was a Boy Scout, okay? But the power of this place is we're in the hope of business. And hope really is the most important thing. 
then what does it mean to find hope in the, in the days in the wilderness? John the Baptist is in the Judean wilderness. That, that's still a rough place to this day. As a matter of fact, last year, a group of, uh, tragically, a group of hikers um, near where Jesus was baptized were killed uh, because these, this rugged territory, there were flash floods. It's really one, from Jerusalem to the Jordan Valley, just one incline. And so these valleys, these canyons, and if you, you know, it happens in the southwest as well. You know, you may be fine where you're at, but if there was a cloudburst upstream, you may be in trouble, right? So you need to know your territory. But this is a rugged, rugged desert area, uh, wild animals, not a lot. You have to know where the water is. And this is where John the Baptist was out baptizing. And John the Baptist, in many ways, represents a throwback. He, he embodies the wilderness tradition in Judaism. Because in the history of the people of God, the wilderness is the place where God does things. The children of Israel are taken out of Egypt and are in the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness where they become a people, where they're formed and they're shaped. Elijah, after his great triumph at Mount Carmel, but then having to run for his life from Jezebel and Ahab, goes back into the wilderness because he's lost faith and he has to find God. And of course, where does Jesus go after this? He's immediately driven into the wilderness for temptation. The wilderness is always both beautiful and dangerous. Lonely and full of presence. The wilderness is inevitable and necessary. It is where the people of God are both tested and formed. It is the way of Abraham, Hagar, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. It is our way as well. There are things that can only be known in a time and place that is the wastelands. And so you do not have to go to the mountains or to the desert to be in the wilderness. Whatever wilderness you experience in your life, and that wilderness can be occupationally, it can be family, it can be existentially, it can be a health crisis, it can be a time where you just turn around and you're not sure what life is about anymore. Even though those times of wilderness are hard and they can be dangerous, but it's in the wildernesses of our lives where God comes to us. From a character or from a spiritual perspective, you don't learn a lot from winning. Okay? When you have winning and good days, those are to be enjoyed. It's in the days we lose, in the days we struggle. Those are when character is formed and when God, where God can be found. T.S. Eliot, in the famous poem, The Wasteland, says this. I will show you something different from either. Your shadow at morning striding behind you, or your shadow at evening rising to meet you. I will show you fear in a handful of dust. 
In the wilderness, we can be reminded very quickly that we are dust. But there's things to be learned there. And perhaps the most important thing to be learned there is the need for dependence, right? The need for dependence. I remember being in West Texas out uh, on a ranch with Holt Cowden. Doesn't that, that's the name of someone who should have a ranch, right? Holt Cowden of the Cowden family. And at that point, the third largest bank failure had happened in Midland, Texas. And unfortunately, the Caldens had a lot of their money in that bank. They lost millions of dollars because they, they were ranchers, but there happened to be oil on the ranch. But then the oil market collapsed. And so Midland, Texas has these really tall buildings. So you can see them because it's flat. You can see them 10 miles away. So we're sitting out, um, we're out on this ranch, and 10 miles away you can see the skyline of Midland. And... He looked at me and goes, you know, he's pointing to downtown Midland. I thought the answer was there. But as I look around here, and you know, it's barren West Texas. It looks like the moon a little bit, right? Okay. He says, here's where the truth is. Here's where I found God again. It was in the wilderness of his financial loss. It was in the wilderness of... God's nature that he found God again. And so Jesus and a whole bunch of people are making their way out to the wilderness to see what John the Baptist has to say. And the heart of John the Baptist's message was repentance. Turn around for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 2020 may turn out to be one of the ugliest elections in American history. But if you were going to comparative study, we don't know yet what 2020 is going to be like. But for pure vitriol, the election of 1800 was one of the worst of all time. Okay. And what makes it even more shocking that it was such a nasty election was two of the most important founding fathers were running against each other. John Adams and Thomas Jefferson. Matter of fact, this is what Jefferson said about Adams, that he was a distrustful, obstinate, excessively vain, and takes no counsel from anyone. Weeks later, Adams spewed out his frustration writing in a private letter that Thomas Jefferson was a mind soured, yet seeking for popularity, and eating to a honeycomb with ambition, yet weak, confused, uninformed, and ignorant. And that's the stuff I could share. They had a horrendous um, falling out. Okay. Adams beat Jefferson in 1796. Jefferson came back and beat Adams in 1800. <clears throat> Adams didn't even stay for the inauguration. Adams left town before the inauguration. So he didn't even stay, he wasn't even on the platform with Jefferson. So anyway, so it was a nasty, nasty time. About 13 years later, Dr. Benjamin Rush. Philadelphia, uh, who signed the Declaration of Independence, got them back together, encouraged them, and they started writing one another. And Adams wrote the first letter, and he said, you and I ought not to die until we have explained ourselves to each other. What a great line. You and I should not die until we've explained ourselves to each other. Of course, you probably know that they both died on the same day, July 4th, 
1826, on the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Allegedly, Adams' last words were, at least Jefferson lives, but he didn't know Jefferson had already died. Now, the whole point is that it's really good to know when and where you are wrong. Now, Jefferson and Adams took years to kind of work things out, but there was a sense where in many ways they both repented from the animosity that had divided them. And I think repentance can look a lot of different ways. I mean, you know, I grew up in a church where, you know, they, they made sure you knew you were a sinner. And if you couldn't come up with any, they would invent some for you. Okay? All right. Now, you know, I appreciate what I was brought up in, but there was a lot of emphasis on how awful we were. Okay? Um, and the, the truth of the matter is, you know, sometimes that is the nature of what we have to repent of. The, the, the deep mistakes we've made in our life, the sins we have sinned against others and God. But I think particularly this idea of Jesus coming out into the wilderness to be baptized, we're reminded that, you know, repentance is really a turning around. It's a new beginning. And it's always good to know where and how you are wrong. If you cannot think of some way you are living wrongly, if you cannot think of some attitude or practice you need to change, if you cannot think of some unresolved harm you've done to someone, if you cannot come up with some way you are not living faithful to God, then you don't know yourself well enough. Okay. I remember one time doing marital counseling with a family, a couple, and the one spouse had a list of everything the other person had done wrong. And they had a really long list. Okay. And finally, when they got done, I said, okay, well, what, what did you do wrong? And the person got really indignant. What do you mean what I did wrong? Well, you don't have any control over what he did wrong. But if you want your marriage to heal, you have to begin with, with where you're wrong. I think that's the power of this idea of repentance. See, there's an interesting thing where the, the common people that came out to see John the Baptist, they had a long list. They knew what they had done wrong. The Pharisees and Sadducees, the good people, the highly religious people, when John the Baptist calls them a bunch of snakes, he's trying to wake them up. Now, he might be angry, too, all right? But he's trying to wake them up. You're out here not because you need to change. You're out here just to see what's going on. But you need to be here. You need to look with inside yourselves. Because you need this just as much as these people you're looking down on. And part of our preparation, if you would, to go deeper into Christian life is to understand the things in us that we need to give to God. The attitudes. The parts of our heart that we hold on to. The fears. The guilt. I was talking to somebody recently, you know, not part of either of these church communities, someone I've known the previous church, and he's still just caught in that cycle of shame. 
And I said to him, I said, you know, when are you going to just let God forgive you? Because you're never going to be able to get beyond this if you don't let God forgive you. And so the good news of the gospel is that God knows what's broken in you. And God loves you regardless. But there's an opportunity for us to be better. Not as a way of earning God's love, a way of being able to live life in a deeper and more powerful way. Perhaps one of the most important things that this passage talks about is identity, who, who we really are. Now, what's really important here is who Jesus is. All right. In other words, it's interesting. All four of the go- or the three synoptic gospels all have a different kind of way the voice speaks. In Mark's gospel, it's as if only Jesus can hear. So it's important for Jesus to know fully who he is. Here is a proclamation. It's a proclamation of who Jesus is for God and for the world. Matter of fact, our Old Testament reading is particularly brought to mind in this passage. Matthew has Isaiah 40 and 42 in the back of his mind when he's writing this chapter. And just to, re- just to remind you, what was the expectation of who Jesus was is found in our Old Testament reading this morning. I just want to highlight it. I will put my spirit upon you. I will bring forth justice to the nations. I'm the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I've taken you by the hand. I am your creator. You will not grow faint. I will sustain you. So it's about Jesus' identity, but it's also about the identity of who we are coming. I mean, one of the things that John the Baptist confronts the Sadducees and Pharisees about is you take pride in who you are, your identity. You're the sons of Abraham, but don't you understand that God can turn these stones into Abraham's children. That's not what it means to follow God. It's not your church membership. It is not who you're related to. It's about the state of your heart. It's really interesting. The Sadducees and Pharisees represent one kind of position in uh, Second Second Temple Judaism. Okay, John the Baptist represents a more extreme position. In some levels, what the Pharisees and Sadducees represent, I'm in God's family because I'm part of the people of Israel. Okay? My identity as, a, as belonging to God is because who I am, I'm in Israel. John the Baptist offers a more extreme position that was also present in the first century, and that is, no, to be a child of God is to act as if you're a child of God. Okay? That's why you have to repent. It's not enough to say, I've been born into this. You have to show that you really are sincere about this. Okay. John the Baptist is kind of fighting fundamentalist over here. Right? The Sadducees are nice mainline people. Okay. All right. What's interesting, Jesus doesn't agree with either of them. And this is the shocker. Because if we read on in Isaiah 42... I have given you a covenant to the people. I have come as a light to the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. 
Sadducees, this belongs to us by birth. John the Baptist, this belongs to you by how fervent you are in your faith and in your practice. Jesus, this belongs to you because it's a gift. It's not who you are. It's not how you, well you perform. I precisely have come to set free the prisoners, the people who need saving. Which brings us back to the wilderness. When you're in the wilderness, you know you need help. When things are going okay, we can live under the illusion that they're always going to be okay, right? <laughs> right? The wilderness, no. You know things are not okay. You know the future is not certain. Our salvation in the wilderness is found in God. Our identity is found in God. Repentance is to turn from our own ways and find ourselves back in the way of God. That's what it means to be prepared for the good gifts God wants to give us. I think ultimately the other thing about wilderness reminds us that really true growth comes with a kind of courage. Brene Brown one time said, you can choose courage or you can choose comfort, but you cannot choose both. Blessed are the ones who are in the wilderness, for they know that they must have courage, and they know that only their help is found in God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let's stand again and proclaim what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, 